New Year's, how'd you prepare? Here's how some other people do it. In Burma, for instance, there's a tradition of people splashing water on one another during New Year's. It's supposed to somehow cleanse your soul. Or in the Philippines, homeowners open up their doors and their windows on New Year's Eve in order to allow the negative energy to leave and the good energy to enter. In Siberia, it's tradition to dive into a frozen lake while holding on to a tree trunk, which is placed underneath the ice. I have no idea what that means. I just thought it was too weird to pass up, so I'm passing it on to you. All right. Well, what do we normally do? Millions of Americans brimming with optimism and a few extra pounds from the holidays commemorate New Year's by joining a gym, right? Did you know, in fact, that the biggest membership drive and surge for gyms is, of course, the month of January? And would you also know that by June, over half of those people quit coming to the gym. Could the same be said for promises that we make in other areas of our life when it comes to promises of improvement? I mean, when you're you know, working hard at the gym and you don't see the results, it's easy to give up, right? Motivation wanes. Disappointment and disappointing results, that has a way of kind of sapping our motivation. So if January is a month of optimism, we could say June then is the month of, of reality and disappointment. I was talking to, uh, or I have talked to a couple people about this uh, topic, and, uh, that, and, I, and I've experienced this, and maybe you have too, or maybe it's just me, and this sermon is just for me, which you know is usually the case, I'm just here speaking to myself, but... We get disillusioned with life. You ever gone through this season? And that there's this simmering of the soul or of the heart that takes place. And as a result, there's kind of unsavory expressions like uh, maybe anger, lack of motivation, depression, or maybe even feelings of, of failure. I mean, life just didn't turn out the way we thought in these different areas. And then juxtapose that with the fact that there's God who just didn't come through for us. Throw in that spiritual dimension, and that's a recipe for, you know, spiritual deterioration. It's kind of like, you know, the clock has stopped, but life keeps going on, events pass us by, and it just seems like our spiritual growth is jammed up. Could be a job, disillusionment about marriage, a church, or even country. We get these expectations that go unmet, and with it goes away contentment and our ability to enjoy life. Janet and I were in conversation this week, and we're just saying how it just comes natural I don't have to work hard, and none of us do, on being disappointed. Doesn't it? And, and you, could, you could stay there. You could sit there. It just comes natural. But joy and contentment 
That you have to be intentional about. That takes some deliberate action, some deliberate shifting of perspective, which is making an assumption, which is this. We choose it. We choose contentment. We choose joy. Now, I'm certainly not advocating that we shove issues under the rug. If a marriage, for instance, is in a constant state of disappointment, that can be rather debilitating, can it not? If as a parent you have this constant uh, feeling of failure, that's very discouraging. Or maybe you have a job, a work environment where disappointment reigns and obviously your team is not going to be too motivated as a result. So here's the question. Can we experience contentment when things have not turned out the way we thought they should? Can there really, truly be joy? Now, don't give me the Sunday school answer. Seriously, think about it. Sorry for all you Sunday school teachers. I mean, you know what I mean by that, though, right? (laughs) We give the answer we should give instead of the answer that we're really thinking, all right? Can we truly experience joy and contentment when things have not turned out the way that we had hoped? Is that possible? I mean, if contentment is a deep abiding joy, I believe that it is, if it's also a realization that life serves a greater purpose than, than just my pleasure, and I believe that it does include that, then it seems to me that contentment is more than just some Jedi mind trick to get rid of all expectations. It's got to be more than that. There's got to be something present in me In my soul, where my heart is at rest, can you experience that when things go awry? I mean, I look across our congregation, and I see people and know people who've experienced deep abiding joy, not all, but some, when they've lost the job, when the spouse has left, when the doctor says, yes, it is cancer. How is that possible? I, again, submit to you that we consider this is a choice. We can choose the contentment or we can choose to let that disappointment simmer and out comes, now listen, I speak from experience. Out comes the anger, out comes the the disillusionment, Very real thing, very real thing. It's just not the way I would have written it up. We focus on the past events, and it steals our contentment. Did you know that there's a term that psychiatrists have coined for disappointed tourists, calling it the Paris effect? It simply means the disappointment that first-time visitors to Paris experience. That's how it got its name from hyped-up expectations that they've read about of what's going to happen when you visit Paris. By the way, a side note, has nothing to do with the sermon, but Janet and I were going to go to Paris about, what was it, three or four years ago. 
And then she said she'd like to have the bathrooms redone. I said, well, hon, we can't do both. You got to choose one or the other. So I said, maybe, you know, next year we can go to Paris. She chose the bathrooms. A practical woman she is. I want to <laughs> just praise her for that. We've never made it to Paris, by the way. I hear it's a really long ride in the car, so we can't, can't do that. From the Wall Street Journal, uh, last year was an article, and I quote, says this. Dr. Hiroki Atta, a Japanese psychiatrist working in France who first identified the syndrome in the 1980s, which often affects women who arrive expecting an affluent and friendly European capital with slim, beautiful Parisians walking around smelling of Chanel. Then the article went on to note that there are many Japanese and Chinese visitors, and again I quote, who expect a place full of romance, beauty, and wealth. Instead, they find pavements peppered with cigarette butts, aggravated commuters, and packed metro trains. For some, the shock is too much to bear, prompting them to seek medical help for symptoms that may include irritability, fear, obsession, depressed mood, insomnia, and a feeling of persecution by the French. I mean, in extreme cases, it says, and I'm still quoting, in extreme cases, the only remedy is a one-way ticket out of France. Now, it's hard to imagine that a mindset about a vacation could send you to the hospital, but disappointment has great power. There's a biblical character in the very first book chronologically written in the Bible, in the book of Job. Job was a man who for a season thought that he deserved a lot better than what he was getting. He thought he was getting a raw deal from God. He was working along the premise that if you live for God, if you trust God, things ought to work out in your favor. And if things are not working in your favor, then what must we assume? I lack faith. I've done something wrong. God is punishing me. I think you get the shtick. Now, it's a common notion, right? We think just like Job. Maybe the, the more um, extreme case, we might call it name it and claim it. But for others, the more normal way that we look about this is that if, if uh, sickness or pain comes or you lose your job, then God must have it out for me. That's the way people think. And in the first chapter of Job, we see this conversation that's taking place. Job doesn't know this is going on, but... There's a conversation between Satan and God. And Satan says to God, listen, the reason this dude is following you is only because the guy is doing so well. I mean, he's on easy street right now. Of course he's going to love you. Take all that away. Allow him to get sick and he's going to go south. He's going to have nothing to do with you. It wasn't an easy ride for Job, right? Things were extremely difficult. I would remind you of this. When we think that way, that's in Satan's wheelhouse. We're thinking like Satan wanted him to think. That's quite a thought to think about that, isn't it? That if I do all the things that I should do, then God will give me all the things I want. That's Satan giving us that kind of a thought. When hard times come to Job, and if you know the story, you know, 
he lost basically everything he had, there was this cacophony of voices from family and friends that basically said to him, curse God. And, and blaming and shaming, it tells us we better choose our friends wisely, right? Now consider with that as a backdrop. The truth of Numbers chapter 6. Think, wow, Numbers, really, we're going there? Well, I'd like for us to consider making this a guide for 2016. This is a famous blessing from Aaron, otherwise known as a Nazarite vow. And all that you need to know about this Nazarite vow is that there were multiple uses for the vow. There were ways in which it was for a short period of time or longer period of time. The bottom line is it was an expression of dedication to God. And it was a recognition of God blessing his people, okay? Now, this was not due to outstanding acts of devotion on the part of the people, but it was due to God's grace and kindness that he was expressing to his people. Here are the words. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. I just love these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. Again, 2016. Let's see if we can frame our thinking to this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now this prayer is at the end of a promise to dedicate every aspect of life to God under this Nazarite vow. In other words, can can the Lord use me or sanctify every aspect of my life? Can my job, my home, my family, my body, my church, everything be sanctified for his use? And of course, I'd say, yes, it can be. And then let me deposit the last statement in verse 25 into our brain, sear this in here, as a synonym for contentment when he says, God will give you peace. Give you peace, contentment. I think those are one and the same. The Lord can give us peace, but how? How? Well, what does he say beforehand? Right? The Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine on you. He's gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you. In short, contentment is knowing who God is, how he feels about us, what he's done for us, what he's going to do for us. It has much more to do with this, our relationship with him, our thinking about him, than this, the circumstances. Now, I'm assuming most of us here are Americans. And another assumption, actually this is a fact, because of that, we are enjoying great abundance. We enjoy an abundance greater than over 95% of the population on the face of the earth. And here's a spiritual maxim as a result, that abundance is not a fertile field for contentment. Abundance is not a fertile field. Now, I don't say this to make us feel guilty. We ought to just thank God, enjoy it, use it for the kingdom, okay? But abundance is not a fertile field for contentment. 
I suspect that your experience is probably much like Janet and I. We got married in 1980, and I think of what our life was, was back then, the, the situation that we lived in, our jobs, our income, life was extremely simple, all right, at that point. But you know what? We were as happy as larks. Our, our, our contentment was not hard to come by because we didn't have to manage all the things that we are managing now. All, all I'm saying is abundance makes contentment much more difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible now. We just have to work at it a lot harder to maintain that contentment and to remind ourselves. So, what are some things that we can pull out of this passage? Let's look at the first one. The Lord bless you and keep you. Now, this blessing from the Old Testament mindset, remember we're talking about the people of Israel first. It was about descendants. It was about a fruitful land. It was about a protection from enemies. God's abiding presence was to be enjoyed. And the people lived under this protective umbrella of God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. They had experienced deliverance from this terrible bondage in Egypt. They witnessed the provision and protection through the wilderness. And his protection would, would guard them, they were praying, in future generations that he would keep that going. Now, here's one thing I want to ask you. Because God was going to do this, was that because Israel was so good to God? Was that because Israel had been completely 100% faithful? No. That wasn't the case at all. God's blessing was not in equal measure to Israel's performance, but was an abundance of God's goodness and grace and mercy. Now, that's not to say that God did not allow hardship upon Israel as a direct result of their disobedience. He does, and I would suggest he still does for us today. In the way of, of discipline, he disciplines his children, all right? But the point is that the blessings that God gave Israel did not come in direct correlation to their performance. It was God's goodness, his kindness to them. So this prayer to have God bless them, to keep them, was a request of divine protection and assurance that such protection would remain for succeeding generations. Now, let me ask you, can we expect God to respond the same way for us today? You say, well, that was a prayer back in the Old Testament. That didn't apply. No. no. Can't we expect God, listen, to be good to his children? To protect us under the new covenant in Christ? Absolutely. Listen to some of these verses. Psalm 121, 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's Isaiah 41, 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Jeremiah 31.10. 
But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, 2 Timothy 1.12. So I ask you, is God willing and able to do good towards his children, towards us? Absolutely. Is there anything that happens to us that's outside of his sovereign hand that he allows? No. Will he ever leave us or forsake us? No. Are we not protected by his sovereign presence in whatever happens to us? Absolutely. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Next, the Lord makes his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. When the scripture says that that the Lord is shining his face upon you, you know what it means? That he is attentive to us. He is paying attention to our lives, to us in particular. Now, this is not something that we can take for granted. I mean, in the Old Testament economy, there was a direct correlation to some of these blessings that were conditional by God to the obedience of Israel. For instance, when Joshua was taking over for Moses to lead Israel, God warned, this is out of uh, Deuteronomy 31, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? See, when God's face is turned away, there is no chance of humankind experiencing blessing. And when God's face is turned toward us, then we can experience what it says in Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now listen, there are people, plenty of people, I talk to them every semester, that don't want to have anything to do with God. The very mention of God's name is repugnant to them. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They don't have anything to do with the church. They don't have anything to do with God's moral boundaries. They want to be left alone. And so God, as a part of his judgment, leaves them alone. And that is the worst state to be in. And we read in Romans 1, for those who refuse to recognize moral boundaries, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. It's a way of saying that God is allowing them to feel the full effect of their sin without his interference. They are experiencing exactly what they wanted, life without God, and life like that is miserable indeed. God's face does not shine upon them. So when God's face is shining upon us, he is paying attention to our lives. 
He is intervening. There is conviction of sin. He's seeking to have our hearts turn to him. He's taking his word. He's taking a, a, a friend and he's trying to steer us to him to show us the eternal value of our choices. And he wants us to experience his rich blessing. Maybe the, the most beautiful words in all the New Testament is in Matthew one twenty three, when it announces that in Christ, God is with us. Emmanuel. God is with us. In other words, he's not only paying attention, but now God has chosen, he doesn't just see us, he now chosen to enter our world, to interact with us, to be a part, to understand, to empathize, sympathize with our weaknesses. And with the full knowledge of what the human race is like, with the full knowledge of having experienced the humanity, he forgives us of our sin. Not just present sin, but sin of what we will do. And I would say this, that our sin is so egregious to a holy God and his grace so great that every transaction when a person believes in the gospel and the grace of God washes a heart and cleanses them every time a person comes to salvation. This causes, check this out, it causes the angels to stoop down and take a look, and they're like, come on over, look at this. This is amazing. I'm not just making this up. Listen to 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look, and it means to peer, to pay attention to the details, because they can't experience that, what we experience. Are we not recipients of great grace? Oh, man. And so I ask you, is God not paying attention to us today? Oh, yeah. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. And then we read this. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And when we read that the Lord is to lift up his countenance toward a person, it's an expression of his pleasure and desire and affection. In other words, he delights in us. He, we make him smile. He, he has your picture in his wallet and he's showing, look at so-and-so, look at John and Bill. I love this guy. Oh, I love her. I delight in you. It's a wonderful expression. There's a passage in Isaiah 62 where God is expressing his love for his people Israel. And draws the, the parallel of, of a husband having delight, passion for his wife. Listen to this. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I 
will not be quiet until her righteousness, righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation sa- shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So when God lifts his countenance towards you, you know what that is? He delights in you like a husband delights in his wife as she is walking down the aisle. He desires her. He loves her. He wants to spend time. Wow. In the context of marriage, he's not just committed to you, but he has great affection, loves you. That is so rich. But you know what? Let's be honest. That's not always the experience, is it? Oh, I got a sneaky suspicion. It's not love we feel. It's shame. Hmm? We don't feel like God delights in us when we're recounting our past sins. It's like an old tape player just reminding us. And that's the accuser of the brethren. That's not the work of God. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit to remind you of all of your sin. My friends, God's love is much greater than human love. We read in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's so unlike us. I mean, we, we are, you know, hey, you cross me, then that's it. I can't do this anymore. There is a boundary here. And God says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Listen, grace so blows our mind. I mean, we want with our religion, with our Christianity, we want to bring some boundaries in here, man. You, I mean, throw those in there. Hey, you don't even need Greek to understand that. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. There is no end to his grace for his children. Is there discipline? Yes, because he loves us. I love my kids. When they screw up, I want to let them know. Now, not anymore since they're not in my house, but when they were in the house, you got to let them know, right? You discipline. That's a part of love. But I would never think, hey, you do this, you're out. I never want to talk to you again. You're not my son. You're not my daughter. No, that's not God. His love remains faithful when we fail. Then we read this, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they, their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. God delights in you. Turn to the person next to you and say, God delights in you. Do it now. God delights in you. Okay, now try this, all right? 
I want you to say aloud, God delights in me. Say it again, God delights in me. Do you believe that? I mean, truly? May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. So, how can we battle disappointment? Let us hitch our hearts to the tried and true realities of God's protection and assurance, that God's attention is turned towards you, and that God delights in you. And then we can know this, that no matter what our cholesterol, no matter what our bank account, no matter what our marital status, that there are unchangeable realities because we are in Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.